Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Yes, there we go. Okay, so we're going to be doing St. Paul today, and it's just an overview. So we're not going to actually be doing any books specifically. The good thing about the overview is that it's um, quite a bit of information on stuff you may or may not have known about St. Paul. And St. Paul was um, so very important in in uh, church history, obviously, and the whole um, middle last part of the New Testament um, includes all of his letters, and his thoughts actually go um, both directions into the Gospels, and it also goes into some of the other epistles. So anyway, we're going to go ahead and start off by looking at some of this. First of all, let's look at his life a little bit. Let's see if I've got the right... Okay, so with uh, St. Paul, we talked about him a little bit in Acts of the Apostles, and we do know a lot of what um, is biographical information um, from St. Luke, and we also know a lot of autobiographical information, biographical information by his letters. And so we know that he was one who persecuted the church uh, before his conversion. Um, Actually, at one point, he got special permission uh, to go and to specifically bring Christians to trial. And oftentimes that would even lead to death. And he is mentioned in Acts of the Apostles as being next to St. Stephen, um, the first Christian martyr. And St. Paul was there, um, and he witnessed that. And he probably was okay with it, you know, during that part of his life, until he had that conversion experience. So he had this conversion experience where... He saw a great light, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And incidentally, the name Saul and the name Paul, is, it's the same person, it's the same name. Um, it's just different ways of saying that name. It'd be like Miguel and Mike, you know, where, where Paul would be his Greek name, and Saul would be his Jewish name. And so it's the same thing. But Jesus spoke to him saying, you know, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not the church, but... Me, because when you're persecuting the church, that's the body of Christ, so therefore Paul was persecuting Jesus himself. Um, That was the great moment of his conversion. And after that, after he went and talked to um, the different apostles and this sort of thing and and, uh, got prayed over and got baptized, then he went over to Arabia and stayed there for off and on about three years. So it's kind of like a long extended retreat where he studied, he learned, he contemplated, he prayed, and then after that time he came back, and then he began his missionary journeys. So he visited Jerusalem and the apostles uh, for a short time and did three missionary journeys. And each missionary journey um, went just a little bit further, or a little bit farther into the Roman Empire, until it it got to where um, he came back to Jerusalem, got arrested, and he was put in jail, uh, they were going to try him there in Jerusalem, but because he was a Roman citizen, he got permission to be able to leave um, Israel and go to Rome and appeal to the Caesar. And in the end, he actually did die, and he was beheaded. And that was in 63 AD, I believe. Yes. Well, 67, 63, 67. We're not quite sure, but we guess something like that. I think 67. Possibly, but 60 to 63 is what most people say. So anyway, that's the basic rundown of the life of St. Paul. Of course, this thing's not going to work now. Could be my battery's dead. Well, there's one way to do this. 
timeline. Okay, so here's the basic timeline. Um, Paul was born in Tarsus, which is the southern part of modern-day Turkey, which is called um, Tarsus or Asia Minor back then was uh, present-day Turkey. And in 62 or possibly 65, he started the persecution of the Christians, and he got special permission to be able to do that. Um, prior to that, he had an education in rabbinical school, but he also had uh, a good education in Hellenistic studies, Greek studies. So he had, a, he had a background in Greek thought, philosophy, and study, but he also had studied um, as a rabbi, and in the school of Gamaliel specifically. So in uh, sometime between 32 and 35, he had a conversion. Um, incidentally, when he had that bright light and he got, you know, cast down to the ground, he, he wasn't necessarily riding a horse. You know, that was art, and, and we remember that. But there's, if you read it, um, the incident really says nothing about a horse. But uh, you know how the art goes, so people remember these things. But he was, he was struck down, and then he was, he was brought into Damascus, where other disciples, um, you know, they were hesitant at first, but then after a while, then they, they said, okay, Paul, well, we're going to educate you on Jesus who you saw. And then after that, um, Paul went to um, Arabia, and then he came back. So his first trip was into Jerusalem. He met with the 12 apostles at the time, and he probably used that time. We, we don't have a huge record, but we do have Paul himself who mentions it. And he talked to them about the faith and talked to them about what his conclusions were. And in the process of this, um, it became something where he and, you know, after he came to the apostles, he was pretty convinced of, of his conclusions. So at that point, he went off and started different missionary journeys. So from 35 to 38, he spent time in Tarsus and in Antioch and some other places close by. So basically from Israel, if you go north and a little bit east, then that would have been his first missionary journey, you know, just up around there. And, uh, well, I mean, just kind of where he started. And then later came the longer journey, which, which typically they talk about the different missionary journeys. So the first one would have been, um, it's mentioned in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And then there's the second trip back to Jerusalem. Then he had a second missionary journey where he went a little further, a little farther over into um, Turkey. And then the third missionary journey where he went even farther into Greece and into Turkey and some areas around there. And then after that, um, he spent uh, 18 months at Corinth. He was at Antioch for about a year. Um, he was in Ephesus for about three years. He was arrested and imprisoned in Caesarea on the coast of Israel, not Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north part, but the, the coastline. And after that, he was jailed, he was sent to Rome, he was imprisoned and beheaded in Rome under the emperor Nero, who you may have heard. You know, so that was the, that was the life of St. Paul. Okay, so... When you're looking at who Paul was specifically, um, first of all, St. Paul was a Pharisee, and he was taught by Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the most famous or popular or well-known rabbi in his day. And back then, the way that they used to have schools is they didn't have schools like universities or anything like that. Um, they would have rabbis, and people would kind of rush to be able to be taught by the rabbis. And if you're the biggest and the brightest of students, you would get to be in the school of a particular rabbi. And so for Paul to be in the school of Gamaliel meant that he was particularly bright and a good student and also had a little bit of influence, um, which is probably a good combination of all of that. Um, his father and his family probably had some money uh, because in order for him to have Roman citizenship, you needed to be able to purchase that. And usually the wealthy merchants would have that capability. It, in, it gave them certain rights that um, non-Roman citizens didn't have. And so um, that would be something that, that um, Paul took advantage of even as he appealed his um, sentence to Rome. So anyway, as a, just as a brief overview, as a Pharisee, that meant that he believed in the Pharisaical 
understanding of um, what the Jewish faith was all about, meaning they accepted all the books of what we call the Old Testament. Um, They have belief in the afterlife. They have belief in angels. And um, the, the other big group would have been the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the ones who were the administrators. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and they didn't believe in angels. And um, there is that little saying. I used to say that, you know, that's why Sadducees are sad, because they didn't have all the fullness that the Pharisees did. Um, and then someone told me, I guess, that there's a saying, you know, so the Sadducees are sad, don't you see? You know, but anyway. <laughs> and I thought I made up the sad thing. But. So anyway, the Pharisees were teachers, and they were the rabbis that you might think of. We have a negative connotation of a Pharisee because we think about it as Jesus who was you know, popularly condemning and, and continually condemning Pharisees as people who weren't living in the way that they taught. And um, although it was very common in the Jewish tradition to challenge people, you know, even leaders, and Jesus, of course, does that, that doesn't mean that the Pharisees really didn't have it right for the most part. Um, they were the ones who were living under the law. Um, they were the ones who were, the, the, whole, the word means separated, meaning that they were called to be specifically holy, living um, the Jewish law, and doing it in a way that would bring honor upon them and their people. And so they were the ones set apart or separated. And so the, a good Pharisee is, is holy, and one who follows the 613 different laws and regulations that make up the Old Testament Torah or law. And we think of that as like, wow, 613 laws, how could you possibly even remember all that? Well, they not only remembered it, but they had to interpret it. You know, when it says keep holy the Sabbath, what specifically does that mean? You know, does that mean that, you know, you you have to go to temple, you go to the synagogue, um, you have to rest? um, How much work can you do? And so they had to define a lot of these things. So it really was uh, quite a a mental exercise to not only know those 613 laws, but to be able to live according to it. So Gamaliel was the the famous and respected Pharisee that uh, was considered somewhat moderate. And actually, his name comes up a little later even. And uh, you know, so he's, he's one that was written even in secular histories, not just in the scriptures. Okay, so Acts of the, Acts of the Apostles describes St. Paul. Let's see where I'm at here. So Acts of the Apostles explains and describes St. Paul in, in certain ways. First of all, they say he was born in Tarsus, which we talked about. He was a Pharisee and taught by Gamaliel, the famous rabbi of the day. Um, that was in chapter 23. He was a Roman citizen, and that's why he appealed to Rome for his trial. He had a conversion and then had three missionaries journey, missionary journeys. And then he was considered the missionary for the Gentiles. All right, He would always go to the Jews first. So every time he would go to a new city, the first thing he'd do, he would go to the synagogue and he would, he'd present the gospel message to the Jews first, and then afterwards, then he'd go bring it to the Gentiles. But he considered himself a missionary to the Gentiles because um, prior to Paul, um, there were Gentile Christians, but Paul was the one who really um, gave it a flavor and, and really uh, brought that about, not only in the areas up around Jerusalem, but even in the, the Greek cities and and uh, even in, in the uh, island areas, Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, um, Crete, he did that and eventually even went to Rome itself. So he considered himself that, and realistically he was. He opened up the church to the Gentiles in a very real and powerful way, and he gave it the theology it needed to really allow that to flourish. All right, so Paul was a Jew that had Hellenistic knowledge, um, this all goes back, by the way, to um, Alexander the Great, who when Alexander the Great conquered vast areas, he also conquered all of Palestine, and um, going back over to Persia, and down into Egypt. And so this area, um, in 300 years before the time of Jesus, had a very good, strong Hellenistic influence, and that was a Greek influence. So that was not only the language, but the culture. And that's why, for example, the scriptures are written in Greek. 
you know, because the Greek would have been almost like equivalent today of English, where English is kind of the language of business and worldwide um, commerce. Well, back then, it would have been the case with Greek, because not everyone spoke Latin, not everyone spoke Aramaic, um, not everyone spoke Hebrew, even fewer spoke Hebrew. So the common language of the day um, for, for international travelers would have been Greek. Now, part of that would be the influence of the Greek philosophers, Greek thought, Greek teaching, Greek education. And because Paul was from a Greek-speaking and a Greek culture, he would have assumed that in his upbringing and in his schooling. But he was also a rabbi, and he used rabbinical style of teaching as well. And that's a little bit of a reason why, for example, in 1 Corinthians, there's this... um, between Apollos and, and Paul, there's this little bit of a dichotomy because Paul is teaching more in a rabbinical style and Apollos is teaching more in a Greek style. Now, in the Greek style, would have been considered more eloquent, but Paul, because of his Jewish roots, chose to teach in a more rabbinical style because that was what the scripture and the tradition was contained in, for sense, you know, the rabbinical style. Jesus was a rabbi, and so he would teach in this style as well. So he was rooted mostly in his Judaism, but he also took advantage of his Hellenistic education, his Greek education. And the the fact that he was a Roman citizen gave Paul also um, kind of a shoe-in to a lot of circumstances and areas that he wouldn't have had if he wasn't. So not only did it allow him to appeal his sentence to Rome, but it also gave him ability to interact with larger numbers of people and uh, local townspeople as well. Okay, so let's look at major influences of his thought. Okay, so first of all, Paul had a vision of the risen Christ, and this was very instrumental in his thought. Um, Prior to that, he didn't have a full concept of what... Um, the true religion was all about. He thought he was following it to the letter and to the law because for him, being a good Jew was one who followed um, the 613 laws, but at the same time, he took that as meaning that, you know, Christians were apart from that or separated from that, and, you know, they were the new heretics. So therefore, they need to be suppressed. And so he took an active role in that. He was a person of zeal. He thought he was doing what was right. Um, But then when he saw the risen Christ, he knew that he didn't have it right. So that vision and what Jesus told him helped to form him and teach him, you know, which direction he needed to take his zeal and his fervor. And that was in the Christian understanding of the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Okay, so it wasn't like the law was being done away with, it was being fulfilled. And so once Paul got a grasp on that and he understood it, then he was able to take his prior knowledge and apply it to the Christian faith in a way which um, was just um, much deeper, much more developed um, than it would have been prior to Paul. Okay? The other thing is Paul tended to teach about the imminent coming of Christ. Um, It was always a part of the church's teaching that Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead. He was with the disciples for a while. He assumed his power and glory in heaven, but there would be the time when he comes again and restores all things to himself, and there's this new heavens and the new earth. Um, That was just part of the Christian experience. But they didn't know when this was going to happen. So Paul thought that it was coming very soon, and there was an immediacy to the gospel. Um, Part of the reason also was Jesus' own teaching. Jesus taught oftentimes talking about the immediacy of the gospel. And so therefore, when Paul was talking himself about uh, the coming of Christ, he talked about it, especially in those earlier works, as if Jesus could come back any day and probably would. So therefore, people needed to be prepared. And, And that was part of his teaching. But then as time went on, he began to notice that people were getting so caught up in this immediacy of the gospel that they weren't moving forward with their lives. Um, This was happening, for example, in 1 Thessalonians. Um, People thought Jesus was coming so soon that, you know, some of them just decided that, well, we don't need to work anymore. Um, And then others were saying, well, gee, you know, some people have died in the meantime, so what does that mean? You know, when Jesus comes back, are they lost? 
And, and so Paul needs to go and explain this all over again. We don't know when Jesus comes back, but we do know when he does come back, it will be totally obvious. We will know it, and when that happens, you know, we will go be with him in heaven forever. But in the meantime, we have to be about the business of the kingdom. So his, um, his teaching became a little more like, okay, we need to be in it for the long run. But at least in the beginning, it, it seemed to focus on this idea that um, Jesus will come back very soon. Um, the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the body. The Greeks and their philosophy had a bias toward this idea that, that you have a soul that is in the body that is spirit. The body is matter, and therefore, there's this not, it's not like you have an intimate connection between the body and the soul. It's almost like the ghost in the machine. You've heard that expression before, right? That's why there's that album of the police there, you know, Ghost in the Machine, for you who might know that. Now it makes sense. But uh, anyway, that was, that was based on mostly from Plato. A Platonic philosophy taught that. But the Jewish understanding was that you as a person are body and soul, and you're so intimately connected that there's really not this idea of body and soul and so, therefore, he would talk about the resurrection of the body because you can't say that a person is resurrected if there's not a resurrection of the body as well as the soul. That if it's just the soul, then there's some lacking. That's why, for example, when we talk about ourselves, you know, we die, we go to heaven, then our soul is in heaven, but at some time, there will be this resurrection of the body. You know, you hear that in our creed, right? We believe in the resurrection of the body. And the, the Christian teaching is that when Jesus does come back and there's this new heavens and the new earth, then we get our resurrected body as well. And our resurrected body is a spiritual resurrected body, but a very real body. Um, the example of that would be Jesus himself. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose body and soul because his whole person rose. But that body was different, right? It wasn't, con- it wasn't confined to space and time. Um, you know, for example, um, he could walk through walls and uh, he would be present, but he would say, I'm not a ghost. You know, I'm not just a spirit. You know, that he has this transformed, resurrected body, which takes on a spiritual uh, reality as well. And so, therefore, Jesus can appear, not appear. Um, he can walk through walls, but he can also eat fish. You know, the resurrected body is not a ghost. And so, The Christian understanding is one day we also will have resurrected bodies like Jesus did. But that'll come about sometime later. In the meantime, when we die, our soul goes to heaven. But eventually there is that resurrection of the body. Um, A lot of people actually don't know that. And it's somewhat complicated for us to get a grasp on how does that all work. You know, what does a resurrected body look like? And the best we can explain it is, well, when we're in heaven and we're a soul... We're still a little incomplete until that final culmination when Jesus makes that new heaven and new earth and everything is transformed and transfigured in him. Another way to look at it is in the transfiguration of Jesus, you know, when his body became glowing white, you know, that was a premonition of his resurrected body. And so, you know, we look forward to that happening someday even to ourselves. I know some of you might be a little puzzled here, but... That's okay. Just kind of chew on it for a while. But that's definitely orthodox Christian teaching. So it's not anything that should be a surprise to you. Somewhere along the line, I'm hoping you heard the resurrection of the body and you realize that meant something. Just nod your heads and say yes. Okay, good. You're all looking at me funny and I'm like... (laughs) You can't trade it in for a different model. No, but the, the thing is, if we think about... That, this is one of the problems, is we think about it in too earthly of a term. And if you think about, okay, well, God made each one of us unique individuals, right? And how he made us is, is 100% perfect in his eyes, except we have not realized that because of different, you know, thoughts, perception, miscon- you know, whatever criticisms we might have of ourselves, but... We will see ourselves as we truly are and how we were created. We will see the beauty that God made us, and we will be 100% happy about that. But our bodies are not going to be like they are right now because they're going to be transformed. They're going to be um, 
you know, transformed and transfigured into the perfect heavenly body that is the fulfillment of that promise. Anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on that. But this is what, this is what Paul was teaching, and this is what the Jews um, would believe in, the resurrection of the whole person. But it's something that Greeks found extremely hard to believe because of their bias, their philosophy, and their bias against the idea of a resurrection of the body. Because for, for a Greek, they thought that all matter was bad or evil. They were dualistic in a lot of ways. Spirit good, matter bad. That, therefore, um, when we die, we'll be in our perfect state when we can shed our, our you know, corrupted bodies and then be just a soul in heaven. You know? And that's something that they would have been totally comfortable with. But Paul has to really dig that in and say, no, it's the body too. You know, resurrection of both. And he taught the resurrection of the body. And for that reason, um, some Greeks didn't like that and they didn't believe in it. So anyway, he taught that. Also, Paul almost died in Ephesus. Um, they stoned him and they left him for dead. They probably figured he was dead, but he wasn't dead. So he came back and went back into the city. But from that point on, he started changing some of the ways that he wrote. He wrote about the redemptive um, suffering of Christ and how we, in the suffering of our own bodies, participate in that suffering of Christ. And that participation in the suffering Christ is something that has redemptive value. And so he talks about that. You know, I, I, I'm suffering for the sake of the Lord. You know, I fulfill in my body what you know, the Lord started. He, he kind of talks in those kind of ways. And his Christian life is not only a share in the joys of Christ, but it's also a share in the sufferings of Christ. You know, which, once again, it's, when, you, when you hear the health and wealth gospel, the idea if you're Christian, you'll always be healthy, rich, and happy, that's not the teaching of Jesus, but it's, it's certainly not the teaching of St. Paul. Because St. Paul teaches, no, if you believe in Christ, you're going to suffer. But that suffering is in line with the suffering of Jesus. And look how well that turned out. He rose from the dead. He was glorified by the Father. So therefore, we need to persevere in our suffering. You know, but from the point of the, the time where he was stoned and left for dead, um, he, he, he really started getting into that and teaching that idea of the, um, the joys of Christ and the blessings of Christ, but also the suffering and the persecution that comes with that. He was a real strong defender in the truth and the gospel. He would come in and he would present the gospel, and he was very leery of the false teachers. And you can read his letters and you can see that oftentimes he's, he's talking about specific people being, you know, stirring things up and causing trouble and spreading false teachings. And he's telling people they really need to hold fast to the truth and uh, beware of the, the wolves that keep, you know, coming in and teaching false doctrines. And um, he was very strong about that too. So you can see he was a very strong personality, very, very passionate and very compassionate. He was uh, kind of a... Uh, he would have been an interesting person to talk to. <laughs> you know, he had a lot going on there. Okay, so the biggest controversy of the day, and we talked about this in Acts of the Apostles, was this, this intermix between the Hellenistic Christians or the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Because the Jewish Christians were following the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And because of that, they would follow the law, but they would also you know, follow the way of Christ. And you could do that as a good Jew. You know, it just meant you're following your normal way of doing things, but you're, you're accepting Christ as a Savior, and you're following that new law of grace in addition to the law that you're also following. Well, for the Gentiles, they weren't under the same regulations, and they didn't have to follow the law because they were not born into the Mosaic law. And so St. Paul explains it, in this way that, well, if you Jews want to follow the Mosaic law, go ahead. But that law itself does not save you. It's Christ who saves you. But we should not put that additional burden on the Gentiles as they become Christian. So in other words, we don't say to the Gentiles, you know, welcome a Greek believer in Jesus. Now, here's the knife for your circumcision. And... Uh, you know, you've you got to memorize all these dietary laws and these rituals, and, you know, it, it was just overly burdensome for a Gentile believer, and it wasn't necessary 
for a Gentile to be able to follow that law to be saved. So, so Paul talks about these to try to bring the church together, also knowing that there's going to be controversy. And that controversy was very real. Because on one hand, the Jews were saying, no, those Gentiles need to be Jewish and Christian. And, and the Jews were, were really pushing that. Well, a lot of the Gentiles were, were kind of taking the opposite approach. No, not only do we get to be Gentiles and Christians, but we don't even have to follow the Ten Commandments because we're all saved through Christ, right? You know, so you've got these both extremes, and Paul corrects both sides, both of those errors, and says, no, the truth is here, um, that, that you do need to follow Christ's law, which is based in the moral law and the natural law that, you know, the, the law Moses is based on, but you don't have to follow all those external rituals and ceremonies and, and uh, feast days and all that sort of thing that, that the, you know, the Jewish law um, gives as well. So, so St. Paul was actually teaching something that was pretty common sense, but it was also very controversial. And it caused a lot of division, and it caused uh, a lot of controversy in his own day. And, and part of that was when he went back to Jerusalem to, to find that compromise in the Council of Jerusalem. It was based on this question. How Jewish do the Hellenistic Christians need to be to be Christian? All right. Like I said, we've, we pretty much hashed this out over the centuries. It's not a big issue anymore. But back then, it was a huge issue. Okay, then there was also the question about what, you know, what is to be done about the many Jews who were not accepting the gospel of Christ? You know, many Jews did actually become Christian, but many Jews did not become Christian. And we don't have specific numbers, but if you just take the general Jewish population in the Roman Empire and then look at it, you know, a good, you know, 100 years or 200 years later or 300 years later at the time of the Christian church, you'll see that the numbers of, of Jews went down from the time of Jesus to, you know, the time around 300 AD. And so... Um, if you're looking at those estimates, it looks like you know somewhere between you know maybe a quarter and a half, half of the Jews became Christians one way or another. But of course, a huge number didn't, and that huge number that didn't, even in the time of Saint Paul, he was noticing a resistance, and because of that, he had to struggle with the idea that okay, well, why is it that many Jews did not accept the gospel and and is there a bigger plan in this? Did God have a plan in the Jews rejecting the gospel? And St. Paul's conclusion, which we'll get to in the book of Romans, is that um, the, the Jews are the chosen people. They will always be the chosen people. They are always going to be part of God's plan for the salvation of all people. And what God promises and gives, he doesn't take away. At the same time, the Jews' rejection of the gospel opens the doors to the Gentiles to, be come into the, to come into the church. Because if the church was entirely dominated by Jewish Christians, then there wouldn't have been the ease of entry for the Gentiles to come into the church. But St. Paul also taught that in the end, one way or another, the Jews will come to Christ. But he doesn't really spell out how that's going to happen. And so many people think, well, it's going to happen when Jesus comes back, you know, that there's going to be this mass conversion of of Jewish followers into Christianity. Um, others have different opinions, and no one really knows for sure, but, but the general, um, well, most scholars and biblical scholars, um, they pretty much say that um, St. Paul refers to it in the end, you know, meaning that before the second coming, there will be a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. You know, but it's not set in stone. That's not exactly um, known for sure. And therefore, some people think that it's just the, um, the Jews having that special role in place and that they would actually continue that and still be saved through Christ, but in a different way. All right. Okay, so St. Paul wrote in letters. All right, he wrote letters. Um, we might have wanted Paul to write novels or systematic treatises, um, theological works, um, but he didn't. He didn't write biblical commentary. He wrote letters. 
And he wrote letters to specific people. And those letters tended to have a general format that you'll see in, in every one of them from Galatians and Romans. Not so much in, in uh, some as in others. There might be sections that are shortened or, or elongated. But in general, this is the pattern. So it starts off with an, ad- an address or greeting. Hi, everybody. It's me. It's Paul. I hope you're all doing well. God bless you. you know, so there's some sort of greeting. Then after that, there's a thanksgiving. You know, I thank God for what he's done for you and in you and the grace that you've given and the gifts that you are. So there's some prayer of thanksgiving that he includes in there. Of course, you know the exception to that rule is Galatians, where he just calls them all stupid and gets to the point. Um, but most of his letters, you know, he has that pattern. So there's the address, there's the greeting, then there's the thanksgiving, praising them for their growth or whatever else, their grace, and then there's the message. Okay, now that I've kind of buttered you up, here's the message I want you to do. This is what you're kind of failing at. This is where you're missing the mark. Um, This is where you need to improve. This is the teaching you need to understand. And so he gives this message. And then there's always the conclusion. Um, May God bless you. I'll pray with you. And by the way, I left my hat over there in Corinth. Could you bring that over with Timothy? And, you know, so he has these little housekeeping things at the end, too. So it's there's the address and the greeting, the thanksgiving, the message, and the conclusion. And almost every letter of his has that format and formula. So first of all, because he wrote in letters, there are a few things that we should understand about St. Paul. Um, First of all, we should ask the question, who was this letter addressed to? Because that makes a difference. If he's addressing a letter to a church that's really messing up in a lot of areas, then we should understand that and say, well, his teaching is in response to that particular issue. Now, if he's writing a letter um, just to edify people, then we should understand that and say he's writing this letter with this particular, particular intention to encourage and to give um, the people in this particular church the, the strength of the faith they're going to need to persevere. On one hand, he might be very critical if he's correcting a situation. And on the other hand, um, he would be very loving and edifying if he's trying to encourage persecution, um, perseverance in persecution. You know, two examples... One would be in parts of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, he can kind of sound kind of angry. And then in other parts, or in Galatians, he can sound pretty angry. Oh, you stupid Galatians, who have bewitched you? Well, anyway, if we look at the other side, if you read um, Philippians, then, you know, well, here is a captivity epistle, and he's, he's trying to give his people courage, encouragement and support. So, you know, different different reasons for the work. So that's always a good thing to ask. Um, Is it a literary work or is it a personal letter? The Book of Romans actually gets into a bit more, um, it's it's a little more of a literary work because he's doing a a more systematic approach to answering that question about how Jewish Gentiles need to be to be Christian. So he's bringing out all the discussions and the arguments and he's even doing it in a... uh, in, in an argument style, which is similar um, to the way that Plato used to write. Have, anyone, have any of you ever read Plato when he does the argument thing, where you have this discussion between two people? So like one person will say, yeah, they'll say like, well, you know, what about this? And the other person will say, well, I'm glad you asked that question, because actually this. You know, and so um, St. Paul actually does this in Romans. You know, and well, does that mean we can sin all the more and not be guilty? And absolutely not. You know, so he's he's kind of has this interlocutor thing going on where he he has this discussion between this imaginary opponent of the gospel which he's presenting, and so that's that's kind of part of that literary style. Um, where uh, Philemon was a personal letter, he was writing it um, to try to get one of his you know his slaves back, and so anyway, that's. You know, different styles. First of all, keep in mind that letters are not supposed to address everything. It's like when you write a letter, you don't tend to write everything because a lot is assumed. You understand that the people you're writing to will know the context in which you're writing to. So when he's talking to 1 Corinthians about some of the abuses that are happening um, with people, for example, when they're gathering for the Eucharist, they're not sharing their food, they're getting drunk, and, you know, he's, he's writing... He's writing this with the assumption that they understand what 
the Eucharist is supposed to be all about. And then he brings it up again, you know, you're not discerning the body, you know. And he wouldn't speak that way if he didn't know that they assumed or knew the greater teaching, you know, the apostolic teaching of the Eucharist. So anyway, some of that is, uh, a lot of it is assumed. Um, a lot of it, when he speaks of shameful things, for example, that are happening, he doesn't spell it out because they know what those shameful things are. You know, it's kind of getting around the people and they all know it. So he doesn't have to write every... But we do that when we write letters too. We don't always write every little instance down. You know, as well, I got off on I-5 and took this turn off and then went here because, you know, well, you would have known how I got to your house. You know, it would have been in there. Sometimes arguments need to be refined. So the first letter, for example, he wrote was to the Galatians where he just quickly told them, this is the teaching and this is the gospel message. But then later he refined it in the book of Romans to be a little more systematic and, and well-explained, a little, little better presentation. Um, letters tend to be spontaneous, which means oftentimes they're not edited. And it's not like they had computers that they'd type all this in and look at it and do all these grammar checks. Um, they would just start writing, and oftentimes they would have a scribe. The scribe would start writing, and it was very free-flowing. And if you look at St. Paul's sentences, you'll know they were free-flowing because he has the longest run-on sentences you'll probably find. And it just is, it's a writing style. And so when you're reading that, if, if you're too literary, you're, you're going to miss the style and understand how it's written um, but once you get used to it, then, then you can kind of go with it and it makes a little more sense. So they're, they're not edited. Um, they're sometimes incomplete. And um, also something else to keep in mind is that we have to be careful that we don't use one particular letter to describe the whole of Christian um, theology. So, for example, it's like the only letter I read is the Book of Romans and I make this the Gospel. You know, we should really read all the letters together and understand it in the fuller context. Because if we, if we don't, then we're going to be really narrowing our vision. And that can, be a, that can be something that will mislead us. And even St. Peter talks about that. He says that, that, that some people read Paul's letters and they twist them to their own destruction. Meaning, you know, he's sometimes difficult and hard to understand. So we need to read his letters within the context of the fuller teaching of the gospel. You know, the, the four gospels, the letters, um, even, you know, Revelation, taking it all together. And then together it brings about the fullness of the gospel. But taking anything in isolation, we've seen um, historically how you can make that work in your favor if you want it to. It's like, well, it says, you know, if you don't, Work you shouldn't eat. So what are we doing feeding people who don't work? You know, well, that's taking one little line, taking it out of context. All right. So just keep the big picture in mind. Okay, some uh, very basic things. Let's see where we're at here. So as I mentioned, Paul used a rabbinical style. I'm going to give you a quick, a quick example of this. Galatians chapter 3.16. Now, it, it might not be that easy to, you know, to kind of see this, but, but there's a, a way of arguing as a Jew that is different than how the Greeks would have done it. Okay, so 3.16. So to put it in human terms, my brothers, even when a will is only a human one, once it has been ratified, no one can cancel it or add more provisions to it. Now the promises were addressed to Abraham and his descendant. The words were not and to his descendants in the plural, but to the singular and to your descendant, which means Christ. So what he's doing is he's taking a section of the Old Testament, which has, for example, the world the word says Abraham and his descendant. And originally, it may have meant descendant meaning, you know, the entire Jewish people, you know, personified. But what Paul does is he says, it says descendant on purpose because not, that doesn't refer only to the Jewish people as a personified person, but it, it speaks to a singular who is Jesus himself. 
So it's almost like this argument that says, well, you can look at this, but the greater meaning is this. But it does it in a, in a style of arguing that is very Jewish in nature. And Paul was very familiar with that. Um, the difference between that and a, and a Greek way of understanding something, like the Greek style of arguing, they used allegory a lot. And so they would say, like one example of Paul using his Greek style, he says, well, it says that a, um, it says that a, a, a bull, a bullock or bull, shouldn't be muzzled so that it can eat grain. You know, well, that really refers to, you know, this, you know, and then he talks about, yeah, he talks, so it's the idea of like, uh, so the bull represents this and this represents that, you know, so it's this idea of representation, whereas the Jewish um, school of teaching is more, this is the fuller meaning based on the actual literal text. So if you want to look at it as the Jewish way tends to be more literal, uh, the Greek way tends to be more allegorical, and Paul uses both when appropriate, but he uses mostly the Jewish style of, of uh, argument, I guess. Um, I already mentioned this, this idea of the interlocutor, and that's the, art, like the imaginary argument between two people that you're using to be able to um, argue your way down a path. Well, he uses that, and that comes from the Greek school. And Stoics and Cynics used it, and Plato himself did. Um, when he was talking about, you know, Socrates, and he had this, this dialogue going on. Um, St. Paul taught that there was one gospel. That one gospel um, was Jesus Christ and his teaching. And so he mentions, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, this oneness of the gospel, this unity of the gospel, and therefore if anyone or anything comes and teaches a different gospel, reject them or reject it because it's not from Christ and it's not true. You know, so if, if next year we have someone who says, you know, this whole story about Jesus and everything, it's not complete. You know, let me fill in the blanks. Well, according to St. Paul's words, you know, we should reject that because Jesus is the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of the gospel has been received. And therefore, if anyone or anything brings an additional gospel or changes it, then we should reject that gospel or person. Or that teaching, I should say, not person. But All right, so... Um, in that gospel, by the way, is so important that you cannot twist it or change it to get the response that you want. So, for example, well, I'm a priest in the United States, so I'm going to say that abortion's okay, you know, because I want to get people to like me. You know, it's like we're not, we're not supposed to, according to Paul, as the church, change the gospel to fit the culture. You know, that the gospel needs to be held intact, and sometimes that means that it agrees with the culture, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but we don't change the gospel. You know, so that's kind of his, um, you know, his teaching on that. Um, as I mentioned, most of the, or at least a good part of the, his letters are written in response to particular situations. And so in Corinth, as I mentioned, they were having problems during the Eucharist. Um, people were believing things because of the style of preaching rather than the gospel that was being preached. And so St. Paul came and he had to correct these situations. He'd correct them, he'd kind of get them all settled away, um, kind of appoint you know, new bishops or whatever else needed to be done, and then he'd leave and go somewhere else. But you know, he was really strong into that. Um, the cross was the center of teaching. And so you'll notice, especially in his later letters, he reflects on the value and, and the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he specifically refers to that action as, as a cross, you know, the cross. When he talks about the cross, he's not talking about the, you know, literally the cross, but the action of Jesus' death and resurrection and the salvation that that brings us. All right. This is kind of just a cool quote. So... This is from Karl Barth. If we rightly understand ourselves, our problems are the problems of Paul. And if we are enlightened by the brightness of his answers, those answers must be ours. So what Karl Barth, who's a Protestant theologian of the World War II era, very famous, um, he's just basically saying that the same things that Paul dealt with are the same things we deal with. So the answers that Paul comes up with are going to be equally valuable to us. You know, it's kind of a nice way to look at it. 
Okay. Okay, so I need to go kind of quick here. Yeah, we'll get it done. All right, so Paul's theology, there are sharp oppositions. So he has good and evil, light and darkness, falsehood and uh, truth, um, life and death. And so he has these types of divisions to get his point across. Um, His letters are prompting the reader to choose Christ above all. And so the decision-making that he's trying to get the, the reader or the listener to accept is, is the person, the teaching, the gospel of Christ. So there's always a decision, and there is the way of Christ, and then there's a way that is against Christ. And so Jesus' um, teaching should be something that is accepted above all. Um, God is all-powerful, and there is an opposing power. But in the end, God wins. But in the meantime... We struggle in that battle, you know, so he'll talk about that as well. This, this kind of, the spiritual war that we find ourselves in or the war that uh, is, you know, basically good, evil, you know, Jesus, the devil, however you want to phrase it. Um, in the end, Jesus is going to be victorious, but in the meantime, we have to persevere in our faith and in our practice. In the end, the righteous will be vindicated. So the good person who follows and perseveres well, look what happened to Jesus. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, in the same way, we will be vindicated if we persevere and follow the righteous way. Uh, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus already triumphed over sin and death. All right, Because resurrection, of course, is Jesus' triumph over sin and death. But at the same time, we are receivers of the promise in the present. In the present, through the Spirit and, and through being brought into the life in Christ. But that center of salvation that everything comes from is the cross, but the ultimate goal and conclusion is the resurrection and life forever with God in heaven. So this shouldn't be too newsworthy, but it's just kind of what, what is uh, ingrained in, in uh, Paul's writings. Now, just a few... Just a few words, because... Sometimes we can read words in the New Testament and we apply our 21st century English equivalents and really the words mean something more than that because they're theological in nature or they refer to something different than we might think. Um, First of all, the body. When we hear Paul talk about the body, sometimes he talks about the body as, you know, something that is, you know, the sins of the body or whatever. But usually when he talks about the body, he's talking about the whole human person. You know, the body of Christ, for example, the whole, you know, person. Um, Death is explained as the punishment for sin. So it's our natural inherited state of humanity that we will inherit death by being human beings. Um, That's the natural course of event. But Jesus, of course, overcomes death, right? And so that's the next part. Sometimes you hear Paul talk about flesh, and flesh is... It's different than just, you know, skin, bones, and that sort of thing. It refers to um, weakness, something that's opposed to the Spirit of Christ. So he talks about the weakness of the flesh. It's not um, really like sexual weakness so much like we tend to think. It really refers to the weakness of our, our inner being to be attracted to sin. You know, and that's kind of that. Um, it's like a metaphorical thing where the body is, is literally good, you know, because we're created in God's image, the body is good. But when he speaks about the flesh, he's speaking about it, think of it almost like poetry. You know, flesh represents that which is opposed to Christ. You know, that nature in ourselves that is drawn toward the sinful. You know, so then, then that would be, you know, anything that um, would refer to that. And so many well-intentioned people have actually thought that flesh meant the body. And so therefore we need to, you know, be... Um, you know, abusive to our bodies because our bodies are evil or bad because St. Paul talks about the flesh as if it's bad. Well, that's because flesh doesn't refer to our God-given bodies, but it refers to our inclination, inclination to sin. All right, makes sense? All right. Freedom. This is important because we as Americans say we believe in freedom, but our version of freedom oftentimes is that Freedom means we can do whatever we want, when we want, regardless of whether it's even right. Where St. Paul speaks of freedom is, freedom is the ability to choose what is good, 
and to live how Christ wants us to. And so that's true freedom because sin entraps, whereas the freedom that Christ brings you know, gives us freedom and liberation. So true freedom is found by faith and it's realized through sacrifice, but it's very real freedom even though we may have to give things up. Does that make sense? So it's not absolute freedom. It's freedom to be able to do what is right and good. That's, that is what's liberating. Okay. Um, Gentiles. That refers to uh, the nation. The nations is what the word literally means, but Paul usually mean, means it to refer to non-Jews. So he'll talk about salvation coming to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Well, Gentiles aren't really... Um, any more referring to people who are not um, in God or part of his children or anything like that, or the nations. It refers to people who just are non-Jews. The gospel is, the word gospel means literally good news. Paul refers to it as the death and resurrection of Christ and what that does for us. You know, so the good news of the gospel is what Jesus' death and resurrection brings to us in the fullness of that teaching. Grace, that's God's gift of himself working in us. All right, so just think of it, what we receive, it's free, it's grace, it's, it's gift. All that kind of defines the word grace. Um, justification, that word, refers to Jesus' action of acquitting or cleansing or forgiving or making us holy, um, taking away our guilt. It's making us righteous before God. All right, so that's justification. When St. Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. He's not talking oftentimes about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about Roman law or Greek law, but he's talking about oftentimes those um, rituals, um, purifications, um, following feasts, calendar dates, and uh, dietary regulations, um, circumcision, So oftentimes when he's talking about works of the law, he's talking about those things. But he's not talking about the Ten Commandments, for example. So when he says that, don't you realize that your um, salvation is something that comes apart from works of the law? Well, because he's talking about circumcision and all these Jewish things that the Gentiles are no longer held bound by. But the Gentiles are held bound by the Ten Commandments and the moral law. So there's a distinction between that. But we'll talk about that in more detail with Romans. Okay. Righteousness, that's very close to justification. Um, That's God's justice making a new relationship between us and other human beings and our God. Life is not just being alive, but it's life in Christ. Salvation, that is being saved from a physical or moral evil. All right, so that would be um, salvation. Sin is anything which is a violation of God's will. All right, so if it's God's will, if it's against God's will, then that's sin. Um, sometimes he, there's a personification or power that comes with that that's, and it's allied with sin and death, and of course that would be Satan himself. So sometimes that gets brought into the equation. Um, The word spirit is sometimes referred to as the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it's also referred to as, you know, the the spirit that that sustains us and gives us light, that's uh, um, making us open to God. So it comes with the gifts. So all that's kind of implied. All right, finally, the word world. Sometimes it's neutral, but oftentimes it refers to what is opposed to God's ways. So if God's ways are considered you know, living a good moral life in a Christian setting, then the world's ways might be living, you know, greedy, selfish, um, pornographic, or whatever else. So he sometimes contrasts, you know, the way of Christ to the way of the world. But it's not to say that earth is bad or evil, because God created it. It's, it's very similar to the body and the spirit. And so so the the world is something that, that is oftentimes metaphorically or poetically used to describe that situation. So we are called to be in the world, living in the world, but not of the world, which means you know we're not living as if Christ doesn't have influence in our lives. All right. The last thing, and we're going to be done. 
there are different letters, starting with 1 Thessalonians, um, which was written probably around 50 to 51 A.D. After that was Philippians, around 56 and 57. Um, 1 and 2 Corinthians, around 57. Galatians and Romans, between 57 and 58. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 61 to 63 A.D. And then 2 Thessalonians, 51 or 80 A.D. They have no clue. Anyway, people have different guesses, but anyway... Um, some people just say it directly came after that, but it seems to develop, so it's probably later. Um, there was First Timothy, Titus, Second Timothy. Those were written probably between 70 and 80 A.D. in that range. And then Hebrews, which was the last book, probably not written by St. Paul, but influenced by St. Paul, written between 70 and 80 A.D. And if you want to know why the books of Paul, like the letters of St. Paul, are arranged the way they are, well, it's kind of a weird process because the longest ones are in the front and the shortest ones are in the back. Yeah, not bad, huh? So it's not really in any other order other than length. So if he didn't write Hebrews, do you know he did write Hebrews? No, not specifically. Someone who is very well versed in Jewish tradition who also had a very good, strong Hellenistic background but also had a very um, good writing style. So it doesn't really, um, the thought of Paul enters into that, but it tends to be much more Hellenistic in approach than St. Paul's letters, and more, the writing styles is, it's a little more like Luke in style, but um, theology is different than Luke, so we don't know exactly where Hebrews came from. But it was written mostly to Jewish priests who converted to Christianity and then they're describing how this new dispensation of Christ or this new, um, this new priesthood of Christ is something that should be embraced even by Pharisees or, or priests in the Jewish sense. But he uses Platonic like philosophy to do that, talking about shadows and images, kind of like in Plato he used the example of a candle, where if I'm holding a candle there's a reflection behind me in the back of the cave that has a silhouette, and then... If we're looking at nothing but the shadow, we get a glimpse of what it is. But if we look at the fullness of the picture in front of me, then we'd see the fullness of what it really is. So Hebrews uses that type of Platonic um, logic to say that we have an image, a dim image of the gospel here on earth, but the fullness of what it really will be revealed in heaven you know, is kind of like that image of the... You know, and so he uses that style, which would be different than Paul too. Okay, so that's all we got for Paul. Yeah, any questions? I was just wondering where you find out about the beginning of St. Paul because I had heard that he really didn't know how he was killed. Yeah, it, well, it wasn't in the Bible, but it's such a strong um, Christian tradition written down by other historians that you know, it's it's pretty much accepted by most real historians, Christian historians, that Paul was beheaded. Now, the details of his being beheaded um, are a little mixed, you know. They're not exactly sure um, exactly where that was. They have different places. If you go to Rome, you can see, like, the different, you know, places. There was one place in particular where they say, well, this is where the beheading happened, and then the head bounced three times and then kind of rolled over here. And, I mean, they kind of have a real complex description of it. So so some of the details might not be known, but it seems pretty evident through other historical records and the passed down oral traditions that eventually got written down that St. Paul was beheaded. And then the same with St. Peter dying, by the way, crucified upside down. Um, although it's not in the Bible, that doesn't mean that it can't be known. It just means that it's known in different sources in different ways. But it's every bit as reliable as other historical events that, that uh, you know... Well, some historical events are known with greater precision than other historical events, but the source that goes back, you can pretty much um, say that that's reliable. So anyway, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes people think if it's not in the Bible, it didn't happen. You know, it's like, well, in the Bible, it doesn't say they specifically sang in that church over there. You know, well, you know, it doesn't have to be specifically mentioned in order for it to be historically uh, occurring.
All right. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, gee. Okay, where would you find a comparison between, okay, Greek law and Jewish law? Well, one place to start, I think, if you just went online and then started looking at some of the legal descriptions around Alexander the Great and later, with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and then, of course, Roman law, which came later but was heavily influenced by Greek law, but Romans were very systematic. And... Greek law kind of depends because there were so many different areas. You're talking about, in one respect, after Alexander the Great, it could be Egypt, Persia, um, Greece, Turkey. All that would have you know, some sort of law. But I would go on uh, Wikipedia and look up you know, just like Greek law or Greek history. It would probably be the easiest way. Roman law is, is much easier to find because they're known for their law. You know, but but if you just look up laws in general and then just do a search under Google for like uh, Greek law or something like that or Hellenistic law, you would probably find plenty to read on. Okay. But yeah, classical classical history would probably have something on that too. Going back to the police part, was that symbol Greek symbol there or police? <laughs> that was there. When I talked about the, that was a record album for the group called The Police, and in that, that was a this rock group, and the name of the album was called Ghost in the Machine, and then the three symbols on it were representing the three members of the group, The Police. So the guy in the middle with the, the three little things up, that would be Sting, I'm assuming, because his hair used to stand up. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that was just kind of a joke, so... So just just an example of, because actually that ghost in the machine thing is something that people still, even Christians, don't really have a good handle on. And they think that we as persons, you know, are just, oh, I just can't wait till I can get rid of this stupid body of mine so that I can, my soul can live on and be happy. Then I can be, you know, a little star in the sky. I mean, our, our uh, description of, of who we are and what we are all about is actually different because of our common culture, which comes mostly from the Greek understanding of you know our souls being um, captured in our body and being released, you know, than seeing ourselves as a person, body and soul, intimately entwined. So, there you go. <laughs> All right, so we'll end there. That's such a fun thing to end on. You can think about that, chew on it. But um, the next two weeks, I'm going to be gone, and then the following week, I'm coming back. So we'll just announce it when it happens. But for the next couple weeks. We won't do anything, but it gives you plenty of time to read up on, on uh, Romans, which we'll start next. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.